0: tell me that this passage is one of our favorite uh, one of their favorites and since we started this book I've been really anxious to get to this passage and we started it last week we're going to continue it this week you remember the time when you first looked up at the stars at night and wondered about this universe there was a time when I was young in which I sat on the front uh, lawn of my house in Round Rock Texas just on the north side of Austin I was looking up at the stars And I was was both overwhelmed with a sense of comfort and of unease. I was overwhelmed with a sense of comfort because I realized in that moment there has to be a God who created all of this. None of this has to be here. And I felt very small in that moment. But my sense of unease was also there because I realized I didn't know who this God was. I believed that there was a creator, but he was in many ways a stranger to me, or I was a stranger to him. And later on, I would come across these words by Tim Keller, which I found to be very significant. He said, you don't know yourself unless you know yourself in relationship to God. What an interesting sentence that is. You don't know yourself unless you know yourself in relation to God. That day when I was looking up at the stars as a young person, I didn't know who I was. I was here on this planet spinning through the universe. And I was trying to make my way in the world, but didn't know really who I was. If I was more sophisticated at that moment, I might have put words to what I was thinking in the way that Bertrand Russell said when he wrote these words. He said, The center of me is always and eternally a terrible pain, a curious, wild pain, a searching for something beyond what this world contains, something transfigured and infinite, the beatific vision, God this is really interesting coming from Bertrand Russell because, as you know, he was no friend of Christianity. In fact, he was a, a very deep critic of Christians and of Christ. But he, he confesses in a letter to one of his friends that there has always been this longing within him. And he doesn't really know what to describe it. Maybe it's God, but it's a terrible pain that is at the core of his being. Have you ever felt that? Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician, mathematician and philosopher, put it like this. He said, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man, which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the creator, made known through Jesus Christ. Paul knew what that God-shaped hole was like. He was a believer in God, but he tried to stuff that God-shaped hole, that God-shaped vacuum in his life with his performance, especially in the realm of religion. And he excelled at that, and he would come later to see that it it was nothing in comparison to knowing Christ. And so we're going to call our study today, I Want to Know Christ, which is taking a phrase from this passage and using it as our title. This is actually part two last week. We're in verses 1 through 8. We're going to dive into verses 9 through 11 this week. But we're going to go back and just review a little bit of what he has said. Remember that he is writing, encouraging these Christians living in the Roman colony of Philippi to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Not worthy of the emperor, not worthy of Rome, but for a greater king and a greater kingdom. And in the midst of talking to them and giving them counsel and encouragement following Jesus, he raises an issue that for them, if they don't see coming, can mess everything up. We spoke last week about how this seasoned follower of Jesus tells us about something so potentially harmful that if it gets in your system, will have spiritually lethal consequences and will keep you from being able to glory in Jesus, of knowing Jesus or knowing the surpassing worth of Jesus. And what is that danger? What is that poison? It's self-righteous pride. And Paul He has the the receipts to be able to cash in to talk about this issue. And we're going to hear him unpack that a little bit for us. But let me just say this. Self-righteous pride is way easy to see in others. That should be easier to see in others. But nearly impossible to detect in ourselves. In fact, we almost are experts at seeing it easily in other people. But we're blind as a bat when it comes to seeing it in ourselves. And so Paul is warning his followers, his, his, his friends, who are following him as he follows Jesus, about this group of people known as the Judaizers. These were people who, like Paul, were Jews, but unlike Paul, insisted that in order to follow Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, you must become Jewish. That is, you must do what are called the works of the law. And we mentioned this last week. The works of the law were things like keeping the Sabbath and, and holy days. They were eating only kosher food, practicing circumcision, they seem to dial in especially on this issue of circumcision because God gave this sign of circumcision to Abraham, the founder of their faith, and had him apply it to himself and to his children after him. And so and they're thinking, if you're going to follow Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, then you should take this sign of circumcision that God gave to Abraham when he promised that the Messiah would come. And so they were known as a circumcision party. In Acts chapter 15, We hear them basically say very explicitly something along these lines. We're told by Luke that some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Unless you do this work of the law, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot go to heaven. You must be circumcised. And so the gospel according to the Judaizers was this notion of, yeah, sure, believe in Jesus, but you have to add to Jesus the works of the law. And if you do that, then you can be saved. But the gospel according to the apostles went like this. It's Jesus plus nothing that you contribute. Nothing that you can do equals salvation. And so, let's look a little bit at what he said in that passage we looked at last week, just to bring us back up to speed. He says in verse 3, For we who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So we see three times, over and over again, he uses this phrase, confidence in the flesh. This is kind of shorthand for what the Judaizers were preaching. You need to be circumcised in your flesh in order to become a follower of the Jewish Messiah. So he says, look, if if, if people want to have confidence in the flesh, I am at the head of the class. No one has outdone it like I have. He goes on and says in verse 5, he opens up his trophy case and tells us what he's accomplished. He was circumcised on the eighth day. Not only was he circumcised, but he did exactly, or his parents did exactly as the law said, have him circumcised on the eighth day. He's of the people of Benjamin, one of the two tribes that stayed faithful while the other ten tribes of Israel went went apostate. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. His family spoke Hebrew. They read the scriptures in Hebrew. They prayed in Hebrew. They blessed one another in Hebrew. They were Hebrew of Hebrews. He says, as to the law, this is the Torah, the 613 commands that are found in the first five books of the Bible. He says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. I was part of those those people who prided themselves on having it all together in their meticulous obedience to the law. We were the cream of the crop. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Remember Paul, before he became a follower of Jesus, Oversaw the execution of the very first Christian. He he was what we might call a religious terrorist. But he thought in his zeal he was doing what God wanted. And so he says, as as to righteousness under law, blameless. This is his resume. He says, if anyone wants to put confidence in the flesh, let's pull it out and, and compare. I have the better resume. And so before his experience knowing Christ, his confidence in the flesh if he lists that as, as an asset deficit column, was all filled in the asset column with everything that he could boast about, his confidence in the flesh. And he thought that all added up to him earning salvation until he had that moment when he was on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians and, and have them put on trial for their faith. And he met the Lord Jesus Christ, This kind of glory-filled Paul and all around Paul, and he became blind for, for several days because of this experience. But in that moment, Jesus confronted him and said, why are you persecuting me? And in that moment, Jesus had mercy and kindness upon him and appointed him to be his ambassador to the Roman Empire. So Paul says, whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, everything that I've ever accomplished is nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And so, his after experience of confidence in the flesh basically added up to zero. Right? He calls it a loss. But in that now, in that, in that asset column, it's, it's filled with Jesus. Everything is Jesus. And it adds up for him to everything. His salvation, his life, is all. And so, he says in verse 8, For his sake, I have... Suffer the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish. And if you were here last night, or not last night, last week you know that we talked specifically about this, and I asked last week for, uh, not permission, but uh, more of a a dispensation of extra grace. So I'll put this next slide up for you to help you understand what this word is. This word in the original is the word that was used for dung. In fact, the King James Version translates it as as counting everything that he has done as, as but dung. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of this verse, put it like this, compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master firsthand, everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant. Dog dung. So, i put that back up there, and you will never forget this lesson, will you? And so, he says, for his sake, for Jesus' sake, I've counted the I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Everything over here that he's accomplished he can lay his hands on. But over here is Jesus, and that's what he wants. And so let's make this important point. We cannot lay hold of Christ if our hands are holding on to our own self-righteousness. Do you see this? We cannot lay hold of Christ if at the same time we're holding on to or clinging to our own self-righteousness. Or we could put it like this. Faith cannot lay hold of Christ if at the same time it is clinging on to its own self-confidence. Think about that word self-confidence. It literally means with faith in yourself. Now, there's an appropriate way of having self-confidence. For example, if you've been training for a race and you put in the work and game day comes, race day arrives, and, and you're ready for it. It's, it's appropriate to have self-confidence there. But standing before God, that's not the place to have self-confidence. And so Paul says he suffered the loss of all things and he counts it as rubbish in order that he may be he may uh, gain Christ and be found in him. And if you've been a student of, of the Apostle Paul's writings, you know that whenever he talks about in him or in Christ, he's talking about union with Christ. In fact, this, this is his favorite way to describe Christians, to describe people like you and me who put our trust in Jesus. We are now in Christ. We we are attached to him. He was saying in other places like this, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Or you do not realize this about yourselves that, that Christ is in you. There's this union. Theologians call it union with Christ. And it simply means that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. So he's hitting on that. So he wants to be found in him. This is an interesting phrase. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. What an interesting phrase. He says he wants to be found in Christ not having a righteousness of his own. I want you to note two assumptions he's making here about human nature. One is that we need to have righteousness. To stand before God, we need to be righteous. But we have an inability to become righteous by our own effort, our own merit. And that's simply because you and I have have failed. We have sinned. And we can't atone for that on ourselves. We can't outwork the failures that we've had. The sage of Ecclesiastes put it like this. Indeed, there's no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. And Paul knows that. He's come to understand that in a brand new way. So he says, he wants to, to be found in Christ not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Notice he says there is a righteousness that's available, but it comes through faith in Christ. And then he explains it a little bit further, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is what Paul elsewhere talked about as the free gift of righteousness. We need a righteousness to stand before God, but we can't produce it on our own but it does come from God as a free gift. I love the way John Calvin, the reformer, put it. He said, Faith is like an empty, open hand stretched out toward God with nothing to offer and everything to receive. Isn't that beautiful? This righteousness from God comes to us, and we simply receive it. We don't work for it. We don't earn it. We don't pay for it. We simply receive it. This is why Paul said these words that we used earlier in our service. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. No one can boast before God. The Apostle Paul thought he could, and many people today think that when they stand before God, they can pull out a laundry list of things that they've done and accomplished in life and boast before him and, and basically say, open the door for me. But the scripture says none of us are able to do that. It all comes to us by faith. Charles Spurgeon, the Victorian English minister, put it like this. He said, Faith is chosen by God to be the receiver of salvation, because it does not pretend to create salvation, nor to help in it, but is content humbly to receive it. Faith is the tongue that begs pardon, the hand which receives it, and the eye which sees it. But it is not the price which buys it. Faith never makes herself her own plea. She rests all her argument upon the blood of Jesus. Very well said. So Paul wants to gain Christ, not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith from God and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. There's a lot in here. Let's break it down just a little bit. He says that I may know him. This is interesting, isn't it? Paul has already told us that he counts everything as a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. But now he says, I want to know him. He's already tasted the goodness of knowing the surpassing worth of Christ, and it makes him want to know him even more. And for good reason. He would say elsewhere, that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. He's going to say in the passage we'll look at next time, Christ Jesus has made me his own. My friends, can you put yourself in those verses? The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Christ Jesus has made me his own. And if that's true, how could we not want to know him? How could we not want to know more of him, know more about him, to, to know him, and in a sense, to, to get inside him. I love the way Paul Washer put it. I think Paul would probably ascribe to this notion. He says, I have given God countless reasons not to love me, and not one of them has been strong enough to change him. Isn't that beautiful? Paul, persecutor of the church, a murderer of Christians, had every reason for God not to love him. But he found that in Christ, God did love him that God did have grace for him and that God has drawn him to himself in Christ. And so, the the priceless treasure that is by far worth more than anything is found personally, knowing Christ Jesus, or as Paul put it, to gain him, to be found in him, to know him. And so let me ask you this simple question, my friends. Do you know Jesus? Do you... Know him. Sometimes you might hear Christians talking about having a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ or having a personal relationship with Christ. It's getting at this personal nature that Paul is talking about here. I want to know him. Not just about him or there might be some big guy up in the sky or something like that, but to know this person who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you know him? Not simply about him, but do you know him? Is your knowledge of him that personal knowledge growing, is it expanding? Can you look back on your life so far this year and say, yes, I'm, I'm growing in knowing the Lord Jesus? For Paul, this was, this was worth more than anything. This was his, his priceless treasure, the surpassing worth, to know Christ. And If you're here today and you're thinking, I don't, I don't know that I do know him, how does that, how does that start? Well, simply begins by understanding what Christ did for us. When he died on the cross, he took took the sin of people like you and me and made atonement for them. And so like in the words of the hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. We sung those words, not those words exactly, but to the cross I cling right before we started our message. Clinging to the cross of Christ is just another way of saying, I cling to who Jesus is and what he has done for me. And when we do that, not bringing anything in our own hands, not saying, Lord, I've earned this, or these are the reasons why you should be gracious to me, but simply clinging to Jesus. The Bible tells us that we become righteous in his sight. God declares us righteous. This is the way Isaiah the prophet put it, looking ahead to that day of Christ. He says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me, with a robe of righteousness. You and I need a garment of salvation to wear before God. We need a robe of righteousness. And when we get to the New Testament, we find out that garment, that robe, is a person. It's Jesus himself. So, that's why we also sing in the song Cornerstone, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand Before the throne. So we need that righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Paul says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. (laughs) Not just simply know him more deeply, but everything that comes with him that power that raised him from the dead, that power that is promised to you and I to be able to live what's called the Christian life, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Paul would later say that God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. That power is promised to us. And he says here, that I might share in his sufferings. And that word share is that Greek word. I'm not throwing this out here trying to try impress you, but we've already come across it in this letter. It's that word koinonia. so a word that simply means partnership. Earlier in this letter, Paul was thanking the Philippians for their partnership in the gospel, this koinonia. And so he's, he's saying literally, if I can put it out here in a, in a structure that's visual, uh, visually uh, helpful. He says, I want to know Christ and I want to know the power of his resurrection and I want to know the fellowship or the partnership of his sufferings. And someone's saying at this moment, what is this Paul looking for you know, suffering? Why, why is he doing that? And I don't think he's looking for suffering, but I think that Paul knows this. It wasn't that Paul was a glutton for punishment, but he knew that there is a high price to pay to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And he was willing to pay it come what may come come what may. Now remember, he is sitting in prison. And he's been in prison for four years at this point. He's been beaten numerous times. He's been persecuted. He's been slandered. He knows the high price that comes with following Jesus. And so he says, I, I, I do want to know what it is like to suffer for the gospel, to share in the sufferings of Jesus. Remember, it's Jesus who said these words. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. Paul's not saying, Jesus, I will follow you if you keep me from suffering. Even if that's part of the package deal, Paul says, I want it. he would say to the corinthians for the sake of christ then i am content with weaknesses insults hardships persecutions and calamities for when i am weak then i am strong so paul says and he wants to know christ the power of his resurrection share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death what an interesting phrase remember paul thinks he's probably gonna be executed i mean Sometimes he's thinking he might be released, but I mean there's really good chance that he might not make it out before Nero alive. And so if that price has to be paid, what does it mean for Paul to become like him in his death? How is Jesus in his death? Paul's already told us in chapter 2. He humbled himself to the point of death. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul wants to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, if that is what God has laid out. If that's the path he has to walk, he wants to be humble, he wants to be faithful and obedient, staring death in the face. And then he says in verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Don't hear in this uh, a note of doubt. I think that's what comes through maybe in the English translation, but whatever, whatever means he has to go through in terms of his death, he's looking to attain the resurrection of the dead. What has already been promised to us in Christ, and so, if it looks like being fed to the lions, he's looking forward to the resurrection. History kind of goes silent on what happened to Paul. He's he's in prison in Rome, waiting to hear his or have his case heard by Nero, and then we don't know exactly what happens. There's there's some evidence that suggests that he was simply beheaded because Romans didn't crucify uh, Roman citizens, and Paul was a Roman citizen. But um, we're not sure exactly what happens. But if it's being fed to the lions, if it's having his head chopped off, if it's crucified, by whatever means, he wants to attain to that resurrection from the dead. And he's already told us that his desire is to depart and be with Christ. Because that is better by far. And so, if I can bottom line our study so far, my friends, it would go something like this. There is no greater honor, no higher privilege, no better joy in life than knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is getting at here. And so, just a couple points of application. The first one is this. Let's make sure that we've received the free gift of righteousness. Paul has described this free gift, this gift that comes from God, that we can receive by faith. It comes wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of sins the righteousness that we can be clothed in to stand before him, that is on the table. Let's make sure that we don't leave that gift on the table unwrapped. Each and every one of us needs to unwrap this gift, this person of Jesus, and to trust in him and not in ourselves. The book of Galatians, Paul would write, We also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Yes, he's thinking about circumcision. Yes, he's thinking about holy days and holy feasts and holy food. But any kind of list, whether it's the Ten Commandments or the Ten Commandments you make for your own life, we are not justified by those, but simply by faith in Christ. Someone says, well, what is justification? Well, there's a beautiful definition of justification that's found in this Um, tool called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's a question and answer format, helping to understand kind of the, the details of the faith. And so it asks this question, what is justification? And it says, justification is an act of God's free grace in which he pardons all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight because of the righteousness of Christ given to us and received by faith alone. My friends, this is so good for us to get our heads around. Notice that This is an act that God does. It's like a judicial declaration in which he says that you are no longer guilty of your sins. And for most of us, we're like, yes, we get that. That's so good. But what many of us miss out on is not only are we forgiven of our sins, but we're declared righteous in God's sight. Yes, we have a deficit or a debt of sin. Forgiveness wipes it out and brings us back to zero, so to speak. But it doesn't give us a positive righteousness. We need the righteousness of Christ to be clothed in that so that what Jesus did right is credited to us. It is given to us so that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. Do you believe that? That's what this gift of righteousness does for us. God pardons all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only because of the righteousness of Christ given to us and received by faith alone. And as Paul said to the Romans, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. I love how Calvin put it. I gave up all for Christ. And what have I found? Everything in Christ. So my friends, let's make sure that we've received that gift of righteousness. And here's the second point. Let's make it our life goal to know Christ. Christ. Jesus has already told us that eternal life is about knowing him in that prayer right before he had uh, the betrayal by the hands of uh, his closest uh, one of his closest friends um, he said this this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent Jesus himself defines eternal life as knowing him about knowing his father knowing him and so my friends let me ask you again do you know Jesus Christ if you do, if you can say, yes, I know him, he is my Savior, he is my Lord, I'm learning to love him, to desire him more and more, that's evidence, my friends, that you have eternal life. Charles Spurgeon, once again, is helpful. He says, the more you know about Christ, I love this, the more you know about Christ, the less you'll be satisfied with superficial views about him. And the more deeply you study his transactions in the eternal covenant, that is the covenant of grace. His engagements on your behalf is the eternal surety. Surety is someone who takes responsibility for you. And the fullness of his grace which shines in all his offices. The more truly you will see the king in his beauty. Be much in such outlooks. Long more and more to see Jesus. My friends, I don't know of anything better that I can say to you than that. Long to see more and more of Jesus. Paul would say, if you get that, you get what Christianity is all about, to know Christ. And in knowing Christ, we become more like him. Some of you know who Jonathan Edwards was. He was one of the people that God used in the early stages of our country when there's this great awakening that broke out through some of his preaching. And he, in many ways, was a brilliant man, but in many ways was a flawed man. But at one place, he he spoke of Vehement longings of soul for the Lord Jesus. When was the last time you used that word vehement? <laughs> it simply means strong, passionate, alive. He talked about this time when he had this encounter with Christ that he described it as vehement longings of his soul for Jesus. And this is what he said The excellent fullness of Christ. There's this encounter he had with the excellent fullness of Christ and his meekness and suitableness as a Savior, whereby he appealed to me—I'm sorry, appeared to me—far above all, the chief of ten thousands, and his blood and atonement has appeared sweet, and his righteousness sweet, which is always accompanied with an ardency of spirit and inward struggles and breathings and groanings that cannot be uttered to be emptied of myself and swallowed up with Christ, the glory of the Son of God as a mediator between God and man, and his wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love, and meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared to me so calm and sweet appeared great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent, with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception. I felt an ardency of soul, to be empty and annihilated, to lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and pure love, to trust in him, to live upon him, to serve and follow him, and to be totally wrapped up in the fullness of Christ. Jonathan Edwards here is, as you can tell, is straining with language, trying to describe this encounter that he had with with the greatness of Christ and how he longs for him more and more. So my, my friends, let me ask you this question. Are you satisfied with what you know about Christ at your level of relationship with him? Let this be an opportunity for us to lean into it and to know him more and more. Why should what happened to Jonathan Edwards in this moment be an exception to the rule? Why can't this mark our lives more and more, that we are so captured by Christ, that we just want to know him more. We want to get ourselves out of the way and to, in a sense, climb up and be inside him, to know him and to know his great love for us. That can be true for you. Paul knows it because it was true of him. He wants his friends in Philippi to know that as well. And by extension, those of us who get to read his great letter today, he wants you to know the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. My friends, go deep in that. May God give you the grace to truly know Christ as the greatest treasure